This is an interview with Murder in the Front Row director Adam Dubin on May 2nd, 2019 by Nick Perkel. Now, Adam, what is something you picked up at your time at NYU that is still an important lesson that you carry with you today as a filmmaker? There was actually uh, something I learned at NYU that was like, that just, just has stayed with me, which was like, always go into whatever interview or let's say you're just filming like, you know, a narrative thing and you're doing shots, always have a plan and a shot list. And you, you may vary from it. You may stray from it. At least have sat down beforehand and like done your homework and like focus your approach. And, and then you're just in a better position, even if you have to stray away from the mark of, of what you set. So I've, I've been always, always doing that. Always very careful about planning beforehand and then uh, kind of, um, you know, modifying or adjusting once I get on set. So that, that's definitely a lesson. Now, when you first went through the book, what were some of the photos that just stood out the most for you? Um, the photos in the Murder in the Front Row book are what really grabbed my attention. Uh, and, you know, Brian Lou showed me that book, and it just stayed with me. And some of the main photos that really grabbed me were there's uh, one that's pretty, you know, pretty obvious, I guess. It's one of uh, a very young James Hetfield. Like, it's just him and, like, his hair. It almost looks like a lion or something, like, growling right into camera. And Brian, like, captured that one. And, and it's just it's it's just fantastic. I mean, it just captures this this kid and his youth, like, almost aspiring to what he would be later but at that moment in time he was just trying to you know be a rock and roller there's another one that that is like a centerfold because it goes across like two pages in in uh in, a, in the middle of a book um and it's of exodus gary holt is facing the audience and he's playing paul bailoff is turned with his back to the audience but he's facing the amplifiers and his arms are up defiantly, and he's like screaming into the amplifier, and it it just is it, it's so alive, it's so powerful. It's like that one moment. Um, I don't know who shot that. I have a feeling it might be Harold that shot that one, and just an amazing photo that captures like this youthful energy, you know, of being in a club. It's almost like Paul Bailoff is worshiping at this this power of, of Marshall Stacks. And I just I just always felt that was a great rock and roll image. There's there's another one that, that just always just boggles my mind, which is I forget if it was at a Slayer show, but it's Toby Rage taking a jump off the stacks and he's he's gotta be a good ten feet above the heads of the audience and he's looking toward camera and and he's up there and he's flying and it, it's it's absolutely amazing the energy and the sort of, you know, the, what, what the music inspired these young people to, to do and the, the aerobatics that they would get up to. So, so those, those pictures instantly jump to mind when I think about uh, murder in the front row, that it's the energy and the, you could feel the sweat, uh, you know, from the, from the clubs right there in, in the shot. With a story as rich as the history of the early Bay Area thrash metal scene, how did you decide on just how this film would flow? To decide on the storyline to take for Murder in the Front Row, 
it was really a very rich history. Um, you could have gone in any direction at any time and, and found some really good, interesting story points. Um, I sat down first with Brian and Harold, who wrote the book, and we just sat and talked for a whole weekend. Like, I, I, I rented out a, a, um, a conference room where we just go and sit. You know, we take breaks for, for, for eating, and then we go back and sit. And I would just make notes and notes and notes on all these stories. I realized pretty quickly that I had enough for three movies and that I needed to stay on certain storylines or else you'd, you'd kind of get diffused and too, it would go in too many directions and nobody would pay attention. It was very clear that there were two tragic deaths as part of the scene, and that would be Cliff Burton and Paul Bailoff. But there was also a lot of camaraderie, and I wanted to focus on, on that. There was actually a time in this music before anybody was really famous, and certainly they didn't have money, and certainly the mainstream press wasn't paying attention. And at that time, you actually had a situation where all these musicians and fans who supported the musicians were there together, where, and they were almost at the same level. It didn't matter. They were the same age, and they were about at the same level. And so you had, like, Dave Mustaine, you know, in Metallica, leaving, you know, Metallica, forming Megadeth and Kerry King from Slayer is now playing with him for a few with with Mustaine for a few dates there's all this like crisscrossing and co-mingling to me that was the most interesting and, and important time because all these bands were like they were just kind of trying to figure it out nobody knew where it was all going yet and certainly it was you know I, I always say like these musicians who are very talented but if they wanted to be making money, they probably could be playing something with um, that was a lot more commercial than what they were actually doing. And instead, they were out there on the edge of, of what metal was at that time and just doing it because they, they loved it, you know what I mean? Not because of money or, or fame, because those things were elusive. They were there for, you know, because music, fast, hard-edged music, grabbed them and made them want to want to play that that style what other documentaries were you watching while you were filming murder in the mm-hmm. front row i've seen let's see i've seen a lot of a lot of documentaries i always watch different things there was one documentary that that inspired me probably more than any other and it's not a, a music documentary per se it is um the documentary dogtown and z boys and it came out of course uh, a, a bunch of years before murder in the front row and it, 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 but i felt like put it this way i'm not a skateboarder but when i watched dogtown and z boys i i felt myself involved with the story and pulling for the kids who were like turning the skateboard world on its ear and they were the outsiders and i felt like that story expressed how i feel even though i don't skateboard and so when I came to Murder in the Front Row, I felt that if we could make a film kind of like Dogtown and Z-Boys with that feel, that what we would be doing is expressing the outside. Now, were there one or two major events that or memories that inspired the creation of the two Slate Team comic books by Lizzie Green? So Lizzie Green says that um, the idea for the Slate Team comics came from Paul Bailoff as an idea to make money um, and thought they were going to like, like come up with these, you know, this, this, I, this comic book and sell them. 
Um, I just look at it as like amazing creativity from, you know, the people that were in and around this scene. I mean, to kind of take these ideas of like killing poses and then raise it up into this comic book and like draw it out and make it funny and make it like kind of, you know, uh, cool looking the way it does. I love the illustration style. It reminds me of like, like a real underground comic like R. Crumb used to do. Um, and I, I think it just, is you know, is just an amazing um, kind of way to express this this life they were living. Um, they sort of had this political view of like what happens with posers, and then they just made it into a poser war. I I just know that I that Lizzie Green now Elizabeth Francois, but then Lizzie Green she did the um, the drawings and, and wrote out the poser war. And uh, and they, I guess they, I don't know if they sold any. It didn't sound like it was a very successful plan as far as making money, but I think it was successful in in kind of setting Exodus and the Slay team apart. It's one of those very human stories that I found as I looked into this, the Bay Area thrash scene, and I said, this, this is just amazing. I have to tell that story. Like, there has to be time in this movie for me to tell the story of the girlfriend of Paul Bailoff making the Slate Team comics. Um, she also drew a lot of other things. She drew a lot of their uh, flyers and stuff as well. So, um, again, just, just uh, nice that all these people are around in one place at that time to, to do this stuff. Now, just out of curiosity, do you think she'll ever, like, release, like, both of them in, like, a graphic novel type thing? Um, <laughs> I don't get the feeling that Lizzie Green is, is going to release them um, in a way, they're out there in the world. I suppose somebody could try to pull them together. She was very, Elizabeth was very, um, you know, generous in her time giving an interview. I mean, she, she has like an important job with the government, and she gave me her time. She brought a lot of things to the interview that she used to, uh, you know, like other flyers she had drawn and different things, pictures that she had with Paul Bailoff. Um, in the end run, I think. I think it's just something that's, you know, kind of in her past a little bit. She's not ashamed of it, but I don't know that she's going to gather them into a graphic novel. I think it'd be very cool. I think it should probably be put... I think it's more like if if Exodus, for like their 40th anniversary or something, does like a box set or something, I, I think like in the liner notes or something, it should be given a copy of the, the Slate Team comic. I think it's amazing. It's, it's really funny and very well drawn. So I think that'd be cool. Now, from the people you talk with in the movie, what were some of the most remembered Ruthie's in concerts? There, there were definitely several memorable concerts at Ruthie's in. So the ones that come to mind are the uh, Metallica played a warm-up gig at Ruthie's uh, the night before they played uh, their famous concert in August 1985 at Day on the Green. And they played at Ruthie's. Uh, from what I was told, it was the worst kept secret in the Bay Area. Everybody knew that like Metallica was going to, you know, kind of do this secret show, supposedly secret show, but it wasn't a secret from anybody. And you know, a, a lot of the Bay Area thrashers packed packed into the Ruthies to see them. But there is a bootleg of it. I know it exists, but apparently they they you know they just had like a good time playing there. And it was apparently a great show, you know, for from everybody who's there. I mean, I think I think Metallica was kind of drunk, from what I understand, but they uh, they certainly gave a show. And it's just amazing that, that at that point they were they would you know do something like that. But again, they were hanging out at Ruthie's Inn, so it was kind of like their place. Um, so I think they wanted to give that back to the fans. 
you know, of the Bay Area who are supporting Ruthie's. I think there was another, there was certainly, the you know, the maybe the most memorable show because it gives the title to our our book and our movie, Murder in the Front Row. Um, Gary Holt tells the story that, uh, let me see, uh, this was an early time, it was probably like 1984, Exodus was playing, but before Exodus, there was like a rock and roll type band playing, and so there was like some fans of that band were there. They, the, the fans kind of, it wasn't as supercharged to show, so the fans like kind of put their drink glasses down on the front of the stage. Of course, when Exodus came on and all the stage diving craziness started happening, all the glasses got smashed, and, and so people's hands and feet got cut, and there was blood upon the stage. Apparently, there was a girl at the concert who was there from the previous band, the rock and roll band, and she was kind of trying to check out Exodus and maybe trying to see what they were doing and watching the show, and Paul Bailoff reached down on the stage, got a big handful of blood on his hand, and then smeared it across the girl's face, and she ran out screaming. And so that is where the title murder in the front row blood upon the stage actually comes from it's, it's almost like a document uh, documentary of that like event and of course it's in the song bonded by blood so that's definitely a memorable show at ruthie's in oh the megadeth yeah okay when dave mustaine formed megadeth um he already knew from being a metallica of the the great fans and the you know the powerful fan network that was in the Bay Area. So put the band together, and he didn't even have a, a second guitar player, so he borrowed Kerry King from Slayer, and uh, this just shows kind of the camaraderie between the bands at that early time, that, you know, Terry would come and play with them, and they would support each other this way. And so they they were going up to the Bay Area. They, they of course, they were a Los Angeles-based band, but they going up to the Bay Area to play at Ruthie's. Dave wanted to really make a statement with his new band, Megadeth, so he built some kind of war scene that they assembled, uh, and they tell the story, uh, I think it's in our outtakes, it's going to be in our added scenes, of building this um, war scene that would be like a big stage prop and a big like kind of staging, and they built this in Kerry King's parents' backyard. So, Dave Ellison, uh, the bass player for Megadeth, recounts going over to Kerry's house, saying hello to, you know, Mrs. King and Mr. King as they were sitting in the front room, you know, reading the paper and, like, you know, his mother was knitting, going in the back, and then they're, like, banging away with hammer and nails, building this war scene. Well, they get this whole setup up to the Bay Area, and they try loading it into Ruthie's, and, like, it's as big as the ceiling. There's not a high ceiling in there, and so it's, like, Dave... Dave Mustaine recounts like trying to get this in there and it's like so so big it can't fit and you know it's, it's taking up the place and it, 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 it's hitting the roof and he says like he feels like he's so close to the uh, to the, uh, the, the the lighting in Ruthie's that like if he jumps up he's gonna like stick his head in the socket that's how tight things were but it's it had to be you know from the people who were there they they definitely recount when Mustaine came back to the Bay Area with Megadeth his new band he was really out for vengeance. He was really wanting to prove that, you know, he was an incredible guitar player not to be forgotten and not just the guy who was kicked out of Metallica, but the guy who started Megadeth, which, of course, he did and stands to this day. Now, 
I really enjoyed hearing about Debbie Abono for like her involvement yeah. with Possessed as well as like the rest of the Bay Area crowd. Um, can you tell mm-hmm. me about some of the more interesting uh, advice and stories you heard from the bands you worked with? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Debbie Abono is one of these incredible figures. Um, she'd be an incredible figure in any scene. She happens to be in the, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area thrash scene. Um, she was like a den mother to the scene. Uh, everybody speaks well about her. She was beloved by, by everybody there. She certainly took care of everybody. She, she, her house was like a place where people could come and, uh, you know, if they didn't have a place to stay, they could stay over there. If they, you know, were going to be partying out in the streets, she would allow them to, you know, kind of party at her house so that they were safe. You know, uh, Larry Luan, uh, possessed, and now with Primus, recounts that, you know, he couldn't afford guitar lessons with Joe Satriani, who trained many of the Bay Area players, but uh, Debbie paid for them. And I don't know if, if she necessarily thought there was going to be, like, repayment for this. It doesn't seem like she was worried about that. It seemed like she just was a lady who went around doing good things for people. Her three adult children speak in our film, and they speak beautifully on her behalf, and they talk about, like, a lot of people wanted uh, Debbie to manage them. I mean, she managed Possessed. Uh, she managed some of the other bands uh, in, in the area, but she took care of them. I mean, she really just took care of these kids and and just was somebody who, you know, she got a lot of tapes. A lot of people wanted this kind of care, but, you know, I think she uh, just tried to help, you know, the, the bands that she could, that really meant something and that were close to her, you know? Very unique person. It's usually not an adult like that around in the scene that can help people in that way. How much of an undertaking was it for Wes Robinson to put on the 84 Eastern Front Day on the Dirt concert at the uh, Aquatic Park? Yeah. So the, in, in 1984, Wes Robinson decided to put on this festival at Aquatic Park. It was uh, called Eastern Front, but it's remembered by everybody in the scene as the Day on the Dirt, a kind of nod to you know, Bill Graham's concerts that were called Day on the Green. He didn't have much money to organize this, but what's really cool is the, is the idea that he put together a, what would seem to be different kind of bands, you know, that, that might not get along, but in fact, they all got along. So that was really one of the first blendings of, of various styles of music. So, you know, Wes was very progressive musically, and he mm-hmm. talked about, you know, he, he put together like, you know, you had a bill that had Exodus and Slayer on it and also suicidal tendencies. At that time, that might have seemed like a, uh, you know, kind of a strange mix because it was kind of, you know, punk with, with, you know, metal and thrash. And except everybody, everybody loved each other. They, they got on really well. The photographs from that day certainly show it. And, and they, they seem to have really, you know, hit it off. And so I think... You know, Darrell Ali, who is Wes Robinson's daughter, uh, she speaks very beautifully on his behalf, and she talks about how Wes, you know, certainly, I mean, he, he didn't set out not to make money. He wanted to make money, but money wasn't the driving factor. It was, he wanted to do a concert that would be good for the area, good for the type of music, you know, give, give an opportunity for various bands to express themselves, and if that wasn't in to do it in Ruthie's Inn, and he organized a concert like this to be able to to do it, and and pr- created this environment. And it's uh, it's a very special day that is well remembered by many 
of the Bay Area people that attended it. Um, they all seem to have a very distinct memory of going to that concert. It, it must have been quite something for them. With everybody you spoke with, what would you say were some of the definitive in-store events and like general happenings at the Record Vault that uh, people spoke about the most? At the Record Vault, you know, the record stores were an incredibly important place for people to congregate. I mean, this all goes back to pre-internet times. And, you know, to get your music, you had to work hard to get your music. You had to, like, you know, get to these record stores, go through the bins, maybe something cool would be there, maybe not. And so it was a constant pilgrimage to get cool music. So some of the record stores that are, that are well-remembered are the, the Record Vault, and, um, and of course, there was uh, Rasputin's, which apparently, you know, still exists. There was a few others. I don't have all the names, but the, the actual congregating in the record stores... Um, Rob Flynn talks about how you would go to the record store and you would see like-minded people there. You know, they're wearing uh, patches and they look this similar to you. And, you know, you kind of found your group of people there. And, you know, you'd start to maybe look through the record racks and then maybe talk to people. The record stores were an incredibly important unifying force in this thrash metal community. I mean, interestingly, they serve a similar unifying force in the punk community and the early hip-hop community. For the point of this documentary, the record store is very important, and, and everybody pretty much singled out the record vault as being the one that really made a difference in their lives. And so, uh, including the musicians who went there to, to see what, what other bands were doing and just get cool music. So it seems to be a very important part of the, the movement whether it was the record stores. How did things change for the Bay Area metal scene with Exodus performing at the Dynamo Club and Metallica doing the Don- the uh, Donington Festival in 85? What you had at a certain point was the, the, the metal scene started to get more international, and, it's, and that is owing to the tape trading network. Here you had these young people trading tapes, um, sending, you know, recording live shows in the Bay Area, and sending them to their tape trading buddies all over the world. Before there was even a record deal for Exodus, Exodus music, Exodus music and Metallica music is heard in Europe. And it's heard there because of these tape traders. And so that helped get the message out to people about what was going on in the, in the Bay Area, that the scene was, was generating this kind of music. So you have somebody in Eindhoven, you know, uh, Netherlands, wanting a book exodus and does so and books exodus into the dynamo club and it's one of the uh, legendary gigs it's well remembered by uh, the many bootlegs that came out of it which still exists it was filmed that still exists and so people remember that as a special moment also metallica was kind of taking it to the next level in europe um uh as we know metallica was much more accepted in europe uh before they were ever accepted in the united states even though they were uh, you know, pretty much a U.S. band. And so, you know, they would go play in Europe, but they were, before they ever got there, they were preceded by these tapes of their of their shows and of their of their um, demo tapes. And so the, the Tape Trading Network helped pave the way for Metallic and Exodus to play in Europe and to, you know, be at places like the Dynamo Club or the Art Shock Festival and just build their legendary reputations uh and this was even before there was like a lot of record distribution i really loved seeing the issue of burn magazine in there can you tell me about some of the collections of stuff people brought with them for the movie 
Um, yes. Uh, so when we interviewed people, we would ask them to bring with them some of the uh, memorabilia that they had, and that could be anything. And so, it, you know, it often took the form of uh, uh, demo tapes, and it took the form of uh, shirts, T-shirts, concert shirts, ticket stubs from concerts they attended. And a lot of people brought magazines that they, that they read and that they had. So these were the various people that we interviewed, and they'd bring these magazines. And so, you know, Ron Quintana and Brian Liu brought um, uh, many issues of Metal Mania magazine. And, uh, of course, we had Art Shock magazine, and we had um, Shock Power magazine. And uh, one of them was Burned. Somebody had that, and they brought it. Uh, people brought old Kerrangs. And you could see in these magazines what was interesting to these young people at that time you know uh, even before metallica was in these magazines they were reading them and of course you have like articles on the michael schenker group and on um uh early metal bands you know a lot of a lot of stuff on judas priest and motorhead what those bands are doing because uh, these are the bands that were inspiring what was going to start to happen in the bay area and so uh yeah burn got in there because a lot of these people were collectors. They would, they would look to collect these magazines and trade them a lot of times. They would like run off copies of them and then trade them to their pen pals around the world. So very important that these magazines existed and fanzines also existed at that time. Tell me, what's a typical day like for you when you're exhibiting one of your films or one of your movies at a film festival? Yeah. Um, so usually a film festival is a place to show the film, but it's also a place to talk about films. Um, uh, you know, you work on a film like this, it takes three years to complete, could take longer, depending on the film, and you just want to kind of go out there and show it to people and then see what they think. So we had a very successful screening at, at the uh, Kabuki Theater on April 20th, and people loved the movie. A lot of the people who were in the movie were there. Uh, some of the rock stars that were in the movie were there. Gary Holt told me that the, the Murder in the Front Row was like the yearbook that he never had. And uh, now it exists. And a lot of people were, you know, very moved by it. It brought back, like, very good memories of, of, of a time. And it, it made their younger years very important to them. So it was, it was nice. After the screenings, there's usually a Q&A. I love the Q&A because it's a chance to, you know, talk to the audience and get a feel for what, they, what they're feeling. And uh, so at, at the end of this month in... in uh, on May 31st, there's another screening of uh, Murder Front Row at the San Francisco Documentary Film Festival, and we're going to, um, and I'm looking forward to being there so that I can, I can hear from people what they thought, you know, screen the movie, see how they react, hear their laughter, you know, hear where they, where they enjoy the film, and then talk to them about it. Um, that's, that's usually what happens at a film festival. And actually, at this one, they're actually having an after party at a bar around the corner, which really fits well with this movie. So that, that'll be a nice uh, piece of it as well. Now, would you like to go back to any questions? No, I, th I think, I'm, think I'm pretty good. I think I got, uh, I'm trying to think that, I, I just think that our, our movie, that, uh, Murder in the Front Row, the San Francisco Bay Area Crash Metal story, you know, captured a moment in history. It's, it, in a way, it's like what, I approached it like a sociologist more than, than just it being like a, heavy metal story, and I think it captured a group of young people who created a, um, an important musical and cultural movement, and I think that it still resonates to this day because these bands are still 
playing while the musicians are still out there playing to this day. And I think that, that speaks volumes about this type of music. Mm-hmm. 